0: Praise be to Christ Thanks be to Christ. So every now and then, uh, about once a month, give or take, uh, we'll ask the children to help us interpret the passage that we're going to to mull over uh, for this particular Sunday, and sometimes they'll do it through art forms. And so this particular passage that you just heard read uh, has been interpreted for us by many of the kids uh, in CPC Kids, and I want to share with you a few of those interpretations. Uh, The question on top is, what do you think heaven looks like? This is what heaven looks like to one particular four-year-old. It's a little abstract art, so heaven is abstract, okay? Uh, Second, what do you think heaven looks like? Okay, so this reads, God shall sit here with children in His lap. He's too good to draw, and you'll also see there's a sign pointing to puppy land that way. Okay, the next one, what do you think heaven looks like? Uh, I don't know if you're, you're picking it up, uh, but you've got uh, two different ways of dressing and also two different skin colors. So we've got, a, we've got at least one child who's been listening to the teaching of the diversity of God's kingdom. So that's a beautiful expression right there. What do you think heaven looks like? Even the spiders are nice in heaven and you'll see that the spider has a little smile. You see that? The next one, Justin Bieber. (laughs) Say no more. Heaven looks like Justin Bieber. Anybody want to challenge that? Um, You know, Jesus invites us to look at things through the eyes of children. In fact, He says that we're not able to even see the kingdom of God unless we learn how to see through the eyes of a child again, and so it's always just great to see what kids are thinking as they hear Scripture read to them and pronounced over them. And so, uh, so, we're in message number three of a short series that we're in right now that we're calling The Greatest Chapter Ever Written, and it's basically five reflections uh, based on Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're landing now sort of in the, the middle chapter or, or the middle section of the chapter Um, which gives us a a description of the human experience, I think, that we all resonate with. And that is that the entire creation, people, places, and things, water, earth, sky, humans, animals, are subject to what Paul calls futility and decay. And so, a little history behind this, if we trace all the way back to the beginning, to the earliest chapters of Genesis, uh, you'll remember that God put the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, into the Garden of Delight called the Garden of Eden, and everything was just humming along, relationally, vocationally, spiritually. Uh, There were no barriers. There were no roadblocks for Adam and Eve. Uh, And uh, and then uh, our first parents decided to do exactly what we would have done if we were in their shoes as well, God chooses the perfect representatives of entire humanity to do exactly what we would have done if we were in their shoes. And what they did was they sought independence from God. And that created a firestorm that the early chapters of Genesis refer to as the curse that's been pronounced over God's good creation temporarily. Initially, Eve would pour her energy into relationships and, and after she and Adam sought independence from God and 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 committed sin against his good law, both her marriage and her parenting became filled with frustration and anticlimax and setback and and that brokenness relationally carried on into the next generation between Cain and Abel who you, know, you have your first sibling rivalry going on leading to the death of of one brother at the hand of the other, and the rest was human history. And then you've got Adam who was pouring so much of his energy into his work, and, you know, he's essentially responding to the first Great Commission, where God says to Adam and Eve, here's my garden, tend it, make it beautiful, develop it, be an artist, be artists together. And so he starts out as an entrepreneur. But as soon as sin comes into the picture, he has to make a career shift into maintenance and repair because everything breaks down now. And now from this point forward, the curse pronounced over Adam is you're going to sweat, you're going to toil, it's going to be painful in your work. And this is the condition that we've inherited. It's actually the condition that the whole universe has inherited from Adam and Eve. We hear echoes of the most honest book in the history of the world, Ecclesiastes, here. You know, if you've ever read through Ecclesiastes, basically the sum of it is this. Look at your relationships, look at your work, look at your wealth, look at your pleasure, look at your honor, and and know that it is all vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. It's all hot air. You know, this whole story... um, takes me personally to this, this, you know, Greek myth of Sisyphus. Uh, I don't know if you're, how familiar you are with the Greek myth of Sisyphus, but it's not really a myth. You know, Sisyphus is this, you know, poor soul who has been eternally condemned to, uh, to perpetual anti-climax. Basically, he's given a job to do every single day, and that's to take a rock huge rock that sits at the bottom of a hill, slowly push it up to the top of the hill. And right before he gets to the top of the hill, he loses grasp on the rock and it rolls all the way down. And the next day he has to go back and start all over again. And he's doomed to that curse, to that sentence for all of eternity. And that's what it feels like to live in the world that we live in. If it doesn't feel that way now, it eventually will or you're not awake. So I gave you four points last week gave you a bonus, but I'm going to take one away this week. I'm only going to give you two. Average it out, you get the masterful preacher's three. So, the two headings today are unrestrained realism and unrestrained optimism. These are the two um, postures that the Word of God invites us to lean into today. So, let's start with unrestrained optimism. Realism. And so, if you study Eastern religion, you will quickly discover that, by and large, Eastern religion treats things like suffering as an illusion. And salvation in Eastern religion is to escape the illusion of suffering. And so, that cancer you're dealing with, that, that difficult relationship that you're dealing with you know, that unemployment that you're dealing with, it's not real. It's just an illusion. It's not really happening to you, and what you need to do is get in touch with whatever's on the inside of you so that you can escape the impact of the circumstances that seem to be happening outside of you. And as soon as you can escape these illusions, you'll experience bliss and you'll experience salvation. That's sort of the world according to Eastern religion, but you see the opposite here with Christianity, because instead of rising above suffering, what Paul says is, as a Christian, you're meant to face suffering head on and to name it for what it is, which is precisely what Paul does. Instead of denying there is suffering, what he says in verse 18 is that there are sufferings in the present time. Verse 20, creation is subject to futility. Verse 21, all of creation, the entire cosmos is in bondage. It's corrupted. Verse 23, all creation groans, and we groan along with creation, and the Holy Spirit of God also groans. What Paul is after is this, honesty. Honesty. Honesty that things are not what they were meant to be. There is something deeply wrong, and it touches every person, every place, and every thing. And so really, the Bible is a book for honest strugglers. Those are the only, that's the only group of people that's going to get anything meaningful out of the Bible— is honest strugglers who can name suffering for what it is. This is an invitation to be honest. It's it's an invitation to be truth-tellers. It's an invitation to complain. This this theme is throughout the whole Bible. I mentioned Ecclesiastes, the theme of which is everything is vanity. Everything is chasing after the wind. Everything is looking for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and realizing there's no end of the rainbow And if you ever did get to the end of the rainbow, it wouldn't be gold waiting for you there. It would be a couple of bills or something. And then you've got the Psalms, which are the the, the prayer book, you know, given to us, inspired by God to to tell the whole human race at all times and all cultures, all generations, this is how you're supposed to pray. And you'll notice that virtually every Psalm is written by a person who is living under the circumstances of duress and anticlimax and difficulty. There are 150 psalms, and in so many of these psalms, the writer starts out depressed, hurting, angry, filled with doubt, registering protest. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Why, Lord, why? My soul is downcast. Do you care? Do you exist? And you've even got Jesus, the the Son of God, who was tempted in every way and, and yet never did anything wrong, never committed a sin, never sought independence from His Father. And He shows up at the gravesite of a good friend of His. This is in the 11th chapter of John. And if you go to the original language, it's quite clear that He's furious at the reality of death. And this is Jesus knowing that that in just five to ten minutes or so, we're going to be having a party because Jesus is going to speak into that tomb and the dead man's going to come out and, and death is going to be reversed. But Jesus pauses to get angry that this resurrection thing even has to happen, that death has entered the story of God through sin. He gets furious about that. And then he weeps. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and, and here in this text, the Apostle Paul, again, talks about how the Holy Spirit groans. Even the Holy Spirit is protesting the world that is right now. And so, a lot of takeaways from this, but one of, the, one of the key takeaways is that the more spiritually in touch you are, the more tears you will shed in your lifetime, not less. The more anger you will experience, not less. The more frustration you will experience, the more complaining you will do, the more spiritual you are. Because there's something inside of you that recognizes things are not the way they're supposed to be. And this is where the existentialist philosophers have a point. This is where the existentialist philosophers, in some respects, understand the world better than pie-in-the-sky Bible readers who ignore the honesty or feel uncomfortable about the honesty of passages like this. Take Nietzsche, for example, who said that if we are truly awake to reality, then we will know that the only logical conclusion to the reality in which we live is suicide. Now that's cross without resurrection. That's suffering without glory in the picture. That's hardship without hope on the horizon. But you bring hope into the picture. Does it make the hardship go away? Does it delegitimize complaint and suffering and frustration and tears and anger? I hope not, at least for Jesus' sake, at the graveside of his friend. If you've seen the movie Shadowlands, which is sort of a, a chronicling of, of the experience of C.S. Lewis, uh, Oxford historian and, and Christian man who lost his wife Joy to a violent cancer, after only being married to her for a short, short time. And in the movie Shadowlands, which I highly recommend, um, you know, Lewis is at an Oxford social function sometime after the funeral, and he's, you know, clearly still struggling with with his recent loss. And his friend Christopher approaches him and offers um, spiritual platitudes, uh, offers to him you know, what you might consider shallow condolences. You know, preaches Romans 8.28, you know, God works all things together for good to his heartbroken friend. Sidebar here, let the Holy Spirit do that. Let the Holy Spirit do the preaching to your friends who need to be corrected in their sorrow. You know, like Charlie Peacock says, you know, silence the lips of the people with all of the answers and gently show them that now is the time for tears. Enter in like Jesus did, with anger at the situation, with tears. That's how you'll comfort your suffering, even your misguided suffering friends. But back to the script here. Here's C.S. Lewis' response to his friend's shallow condolences in the movie Shadowlands. Don't tell me it's all for the best. We're the creatures. We are rats in the cosmic laboratory. It won't do. It's this bloody, awful mess. And that's all there is to it. So, I am here to liberate you. This kind of honesty, when reality punches you in the gut, is not only permitted for followers of Jesus, it's required. It's required. Being honest is the only way to become more honest human. You know, if you are weary of the groan, if you are weary of getting punched in the gut, or people around you getting punched in the gut by reality, that sigh, those tears, the frustration, the anger, the questions, the mystery, the doubts, they're all there not because something is wrong with you. They are all there because something is right with you. Just as there was something so right about Jesus showing up where death had just happened and getting mad as a hornet and gushing tears. You know, John Stott puts it this way, we are, in the current state of affairs, half-saved people. We are half-saved. The Holy Spirit embodies us. Jesus is in the process of making all things new. Christ will return and make it all good, but we still live with the reality and the remnants of death, mourning, crying, and pain every single day. And so, this is why Paul uses the words in verse 22, groaning in pains of childbirth, You know, it's this already-not-yet dynamic that theologians talk about. Groanings in pains of childbirth. Pregnancy brings about all sorts of groans. Nausea, vomiting, back pain, insomnia, the need to turn the Freon as high as it will go in the Middle of the winter time, because of, of the heat factor, because of what pregnancy hormones do to a woman's body. And then, of course, there's delivery incredibly painful. And so, why do little girls dream of having children, knowing these things to be true? Why do Mothers have a second child, and then a third, and then a fourth, if God enables them to. Why? With all this pain, because at the end, there's a full deliverance, and there's a beautiful life that, that you're going to behold, and that you're going to hold, and that you're going to treasure. He also uses an agricultural reference when he talks about first fruits in verse 23. And, and, you know, the first fruits, you know, imagine, you know, the harvest comes for a farmer. Maybe it's an apple farmer or a, you know, a, a wheat farmer or corn or what have you. It really makes no difference. Tomatoes. Say that the time to get it all gathered up and into the barns is a month. But on day one, as you pick those tomatoes or that corner or whatever, you're eating it as you do, just as a foretaste of the abundance of nourishment that's coming your way and that you're going to be able to share with others. That's what he's talking about. You know, the, the reference to, and I don't know, Anna Bliss, if you were thinking of N.T. Wright when, when you talked about creation standing on tiptoe, but that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful way to put it, it's a glorious, true way to put it, that all creation is waiting on tiptoe in anticipation of deliverance, in in anticipation of the full harvest, so to speak. So poetic. Unrestrained realism, though, in the meantime, it's hard. We're half saved. We're not fully there where God's taking us. But the second aspect is, is what makes the first aspect bearable, and that's what we could call unrestrained optimism. We are on the way to being fully and completely saved. We may be in the third trimester, but there's a due date coming, and we, we, you know, we're watching for that day to come. This is what empowers the people of Jesus to be always honest but never cynical, always truthful but never in despair, because it is always true. For those who identify with Jesus, it is always true that your best days and your best life is in front of you and never behind you. That is always the truth, no matter what your current reality might be. And so we sang about these two things, and and, and Paul is unpacking them both for us, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow because of the faithfulness of God. So strength for today. Our strength includes the fact that the presence of God is with us, that as Paul says here, we are, we are the first fruits of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. But there's also a purposeful plan of God in the midst of all the mess. And, and I'm, I'm only going to give you a little teaser this week because that's the, the, the theme of the entire message next week. But I'll just dwell here for a second in verse 23 where it says that we who are in Christ are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. You may remember we talked about Romans 7, not long ago, where Paul cries out, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The body is broken. The body can feel like a prison. And for Paul, what that meant was, I sin when I don't want to. I seek independence from God even when my inmost desires don't want to. It's this body, this half-saved body of mine that feels like a prison to me. I can't escape my sin even though I want so badly for my sin to completely escape me. You could add to that aches and pains, diseases, insomnia, mental illness. List your hardship. List your sorrow, tennis elbow, cancer, and everything in between. So next week, what we will dwell on is this. In the story of God, there is no such thing as a wasted moment of suffering. As Johnny Erickson Tata has said from the wheelchair that she has been sitting in for decades, sometimes God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Or as John Newton, the the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, a very spiritual man, also said, a man who also saw a lot of suffering. Everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that God withholds. So we'll dwell on that next week. But what I really want to dwell on here in my last few minutes is the bright hope for tomorrow aspect. Listen to verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You know, he he teaches in a similar way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. highly encourage you to take that chapter home and read it today, tomorrow, this week. 2 Corinthians 4, because Paul makes it clear that he is no stranger to suffering. He is beaten with whips. He is thrown in prison more than he is allowed to run free not because he was a bad man, but because he was a good man. And the Roman government was threatened by good men, especially those who identified with Jesus because this movement was starting to overtake Caesar's Rome. And so people like Paul were put in prison for that. Paul was eventually martyred, put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ, no stranger to suffering And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, a parallel passage to this one. His immense suffering, according to him, was considered light and momentary, not not by itself, horrible by itself, worthy of tears, worthy of anger by itself. Light and momentary in comparison to the weight of glory that awaits because Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again and make all things new. So, what Paul's inviting us to, to do in 2 Corinthians 4 is to imagine a scale, where over here you've got the weight of suffering, like just imagine the worst kind of suffering for Paul, and over here you've got the weight of glory, the, 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 the undeniable trajectory of where Paul's future is headed because of what Jesus has done for him. Resurrection and everlasting life, and the knowledge that that is his long term worst case scenario resurrection and everlasting life because of Jesus. When you put those two on a scale, the weight of his suffering is, is like a stack of eight to ten pennies relative to the weight of glory, which is like a stack of automobiles. See, it's all seen in comparison to what, what Paul is calling us into is to interpret our micro, our, our micro stories in light of the macro story, to to interpret our temporary moments with the eternal reality of where God is taking history and taking you and taking the entire cosmos with it. He says in verse 24, in this hope, in this hope, we are saved. There are two ways to think about the word hope. There's a secular way of thinking about the word hope, and that's that's wishful thinking. I, I hope my children turn out okay. I, I hope I, I don't get sick, you know, before retirement. You know, I, I, I hope there'll be enough money in the bank to do this or that or the other. I hope I don't lose my job. I hope I can get another one. I hope someday I'll be happy. You know, those are, hope. th- th- those are, th- those are hopes without guarantees. Those are hopes without certainty. But when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about a sure thing. So next week, here's another teaser. The last text, or the last words of the text we're going to look at next week say this, those God justified, He also glorified. Did you catch the tense there? Past tense. He's talking about the future of everybody who's tethered to Jesus Christ through faith, glory same glory Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 4 and also in this text. Glory is our future, and yet Paul is talking about it in the past tense. Why would he do that? Because it is so absolutely certain and sealed. There's there's no way it's not going to happen. And so, he's so confident about it that he talks about it in the past tense. You know, what you believe about your future is going to dictate how you process Hardships in your present tense moments. So, a couple weeks ago, I was in Austin, Texas, doing some guest speaking. And um, I didn't get the insurance. I didn't get the supplemental insurance on the rental car. And I got to the hotel. The hotel wouldn't let me park my own rental car. They required a a $37.50 a day valet service for their hotel guests. And so, over the course of two days, I paid them $75 to put a dent in the rental car which I now owe $2,200 for, for a little dent. It's worth 10% of the value of the car. And, you know, when I, when I brought the case or the claim to the valet garage, and there's no way it could have possibly happened in any other place except in the valet garage. They, they denied responsibility. And so, so it's on me. So imagine that $2,200 was all the money that I had. And then there's another person standing next to me, and $2,200 is all that person has also. And the same thing happens to us, and the same injustice happens to us, and we're both out all of our money. But the difference between the two of us is he has no future prospect. He's got no job. He's got no way to recover those resources. But I have been promised through an inheritance of a long-lost uncle that in just five days I'm going to inherit $20 million. So if, if my future is determining my perspective on the present, and the same is true for this other person, to have all of his $2,200 taken from him will lead him into despair. But to me, it should feel like a mosquito bite. I can go five days sleeping on people's couches and mooching food from, you know, friends or what have you, because I got 20 million coming to me in a few days. You see what I'm saying? This is the perspective that Paul is is trying to to, to thrust us into. He's trying to say, wake up. Wake up to the macro story that is the true story. Wake up to the happily ever after story fairy tale that is true. Wake up and stay awake, because Being awakened to these realities will help you when you are faced with the half-saved temporary condition that you're in right now. There's this redeemed creation, too. Realize that that Paul is not just speaking to individuals here. He's talking cosmically. Verse 21, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. When? When? Paul says, he he puts a timeline to it. He says, after humanity goes first, the rest of creation will follow. Verse 19, you know, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing, the unveiling of the sons of God. Creation will be set free from its bondage and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so, so, here's what happened. We fell into sin as a human race, we sought independence from God, and and what happened was we drugged the rest of creation down with us. Things stopped humming like they had before because we dragged all of God's beautiful, perfect, luscious creation down with us. Creation is our shadow. As we go, so goes the universe, the story of God tells us. So, things like hurricanes and weeds and dogs that bite and allergies and valet services that lie. It started with us, and we drug it all down with us. So, imagine a band on a stage, Ryman Auditorium, Ascend Amphitheater. Let's have the picture, please. Thank you. Imagine that the whole band is tuned up, ready to go. They've all got their Juilliard and, and, and uh, you know, Berkeley School of Music degrees and, and, and Belmont degrees. They're, they're, they're all ready to go. They're all tuned up, and, and it's the biggest crowd they've ever had. And the lead singer, the front man, blows it because he shows up having, you know, pounded, um, you know, three times as much whiskey as he can hold right before the concert. If it goes wrong with the front man, it, it destroys the whole song, the whole concert, takes the whole band down with him. Ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the entire human race has been drunk. Drunk on greed, drunk on ambition, on power, on porn, on retail therapy, drunk on gossip, drunk on partisan politics, drunk on self-righteous religion, drunk, 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 drunk. And all creation is reeling because of it. All that stuff in the news cycle that you hate, there, this is the theological reasoning behind all of it. And Creation is waiting on tiptoe. <laughs> For humanity, the lead singer, to sober up. So that all of creation, following humanity, can play the music that we were meant to play. How can we be sure that this is where everything is headed? Because Jesus went first, Jesus, the front man. (laughs) Jesus, the firstborn, not only the firstborn of many daughters and sons, but as Colossians tells us, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of the cosmos set the pattern, set the trajectory for all of His people and all the cosmos through death, burial, that's where we're living right now, death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we're awaiting And once we're risen with Christ, when He returns, inaugurates the new heaven and the new earth, obliterates sin, returns the Garden of Eden paradise to us, and then some, all creation is just going to follow in our shadow. Isn't that amazing? But how was that accomplished? Jesus, drinking wine on the cross slurring his speech. I thirst. And then quoting psalms of complaint, directly from Psalm 22.1, my God, why have you forsaken me? And surely the full context and the full text of that psalm was also in the son of David's head and heart. As he prayed the first verse, he must have also been thinking about The verses that follow that say, why, my God, are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? The macro context is there to help us understand the micro stories within the macro context. We are now living in the middle of a single sentence of a single paragraph of the prologue of God's book. We haven't even gotten to chapter 1 yet. You know, C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle, I'll leave you with this. You know, Aslan, the the great lion and Christ figure of Narnia, has been put to death by the White Witch, And, and it feels like it's going to be an everlasting winter cold-hearted, impersonal winter in Narnia under the white witch's reign, and then Aslan comes back up from the dead, and it becomes an everlasting spring. And at his resurrection, Aslan then speaks to all the children who've been through all of the, the trials and tribulations of Narnia, and he says these words, "'As Aslan spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion,' But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they, are, that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 Of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's just another way of saying this half saved, groaning existence that we live right now, it is all prelude. Chapter one is still around the corner, and we ain't seen nothing yet. What better place to further contemplate these things than the Lord's Supper, which gives us something to remember from the past and also from the future. We remember the past, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And we also remember the future, that Christ is going to return, and we will rise with Him and with us all of creation unto an everlasting spring, every chapter better than the one before it. These words are so trustworthy and true that they've been spoken of in the past tense. And so we also remember the future as we come to the Lord's table. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this bread and for this cup and for your kindness and for your power, We thank you, Lord, for chapter one, and we can't wait for it. We can't wait to live in it. But in the meantime, Lord, let us hope, in the same way that Paul, facing his own death, had such a supreme hope, that our current sufferings, though very real and worthy of tears and anger and distress are not even worth comparing to the weight of glory that awaits us in Jesus. We thank you for this in his name. Amen.